0: The Radio Stingray Podcast is brought to you by our gold sponsor, McNally Jones Staff Lawyers. Proudly supporting the MUA Sydney branch since 1977. Need assistance with employment, industrial or workers' compensation, or any other legal problem, phone 9233 4744 or visit mcnally.com.au and get a real fighting lawyer on your side. Or tuned in to radio stingray
1: g'day and welcome to radio stingray the podcast of the sydney branch of the maritime union of australia this episode is being recorded at radio hub in alexandria on aboriginal land my name is shane Reeside, and i'm an organizer with the sydney branch of the maritime union of australia and today we're going to be talking about shipping and seafarers As our listeners will know, the number of MUA seafarers uh, working on the Australian coast has dramatically contracted over the last little while due to the actions of successive conservative national governments. A series of government decisions has created the possibility for shipping lines to fire their union workforce and employ en masse non-union workers to run ships up and down the Australian coast. This isn't unique to Australia. Across the rich developed world, governments have been collaborating with shipping industry bosses to smash seafarers' unions and conditions and pay for seafarers. Seafarers' unions across the world have been fighting this and the results have been different in different places. With us today to give us a rundown on what's happening is legendary Canadian seafarer Jim Gibbon. Jim is the president of the Seafarers International Union of Canada and the chair of the ITF Cabotage Task Force. How's it going, Jim?
2: Fantastic. Thanks. Great to be here.
1: It's great to have you here, comrade. And also with us is Warfy and working-class warrior Warren Smith, Assistant National Secretary of the mighty MUA. How are you, Warren?
3: Good, Shane. Great to be here.
1: (laughs) Warren, can you explain to us what's happened to the Australian shipping industry over the last little while?
3: Well, the industry's been systematically destroyed through the actions of federal government deliberately to undermine and put Australian seafarers in a position where we are forced to compete with workers who are just brutally exploited and being paid around $2 an hour. It's not a position that we can ever accept. It's not a position we can ever meet. And we're determined that Australian coastal shipping trading routes And our act around coastal trading and Cabotage is strengthened, improved, and developed in such a way that it builds an Australian national fleet and gets Australian seafarers back up the gangway. And that's been the thrust of our campaign, and it's been a very successful campaign at this stage. we've got some pretty strong commitments out of the ALP opposition, which we're very grateful for. But we are also determined to continue our campaign to own the campaign, to continue to mobilise and fight with seafarers and workers and the trade union movement to ensure that jobs on our coast are there for Australian seafarers and we fix the cabotage provisions in the Act, make them strong and ensure that if ship owners from Australia want to invest and put Australian flags on the coast, there's the capacity for them to do so without being undermined by the most brutally exploited cheapest forms of shipping going around through FOCs. And that's what we're seeing at the moment, consistent undermining of the Australian coast and seafarer after seafarer on ship after Australian ship being forced down the gangway because we cannot compete at $2 an hour and we won't compete at $2 an hour. We will take this fight politically, we will change the act, we will rebuild cabotage and we will rebuild An Australian national fleet so seafarers can rightfully take up their role sailing in Australian domestic trades.
1: So, just for those people who aren't familiar with how the shipping laws are structured, basically, there was a system of laws in place that meant that if there was an Australian ship or a ship flagged in Australia that was working the Australian coast, then there had to be people with Australian citizenship working on that vessel as seafarers and that meant that they were MUA seafarers and that meant they had strong pay conditions and protections and then conservative governments have gone and changed the law that allows those companies, those shipping companies, to then go and employ people from
3: other places. Is that how...? Well, the government, this current conservative government, has been on a rampage of consistently trying to completely deregulate What is left of the Coastal Trading Act? We've been able to beat them on every occasion because they haven't got the numbers through the Senate and we've been able to push back on their complete deregulation. But even further to that, we see governments supporting consistently through the issuance of temporary licences to foreign ship owners the right of low-cost FOC shipping to displace Australian crews and Australian ships. So that's the fight that we're dealing with. It basically was compounded also by the fact that Rio Tinto and CSL got into a big fight amongst themselves under the provisions of the existing Act and we ended up with a ruling from the federal court, again a ruling that completely props up flag of convenience shipping and foreign shipping multinationals that basically said freight rates were a legitimate a basis of the issuance of a temporary licence. So that's saying that, you know, we've got to go and compete with $2 an hour labour. That was one of the big undoings of the Act and, you know, the squabbling by the ship owners for some of the spoils led to a destruction, really, of jobs for Australian seafarers. We're going to fix that and we're determined to fix it and Jim is, is here supporting us in that. He's, there's been some amazing, incredible victories in Canada. A cabotage regime is in place And you know what? The sky has not fallen in. Life continues, and it's been demonstrated that it's provided a whole range of economic benefits, including jobs, protections for the environment, and so on, that are beneficial and can translate into policy and good policy, good shipping policy, and jobs, environmental and economic booms for this country – through developing an Australian shipping industry. And that's the approach we're trying to take. Um, we're taking a leaf out of the book of our Canadian comrades, and we believe what they've done is an incredible thing. And we're on the campaign trail and fighting very hard this time around to make sure that we nail a cabotage regime and jobs for Australian seafarers. Yeah, one of the just to jump in, one of the things that we had a hard time with, and, and to start off early,
2: cabotage seems like a big word to people. And unless you're in the seafaring industry, you really don't understand what it means. A lot of people think it's something you have in the morning with your bacon and eggs. It's simply put, if a ship is trading between two Australian ports, that's cabotage. Same with an airline, same with anything. And with that comes the right for Australian seafarers to work within their own territory, within their own coastlines. Same thing if you went into a industrial factory or grocery store. You wouldn't kick all the people out and replace them with exploited foreign labor just because it was a little bit cheaper and it may lower the price of bread by a penny.
1: Mm-hmm. And so in Canada, we hear quite a bit here actually about what's going on there. Can you explain how the system of cabotage works in the favour of Canadian seafarers?
2: Yeah, we've had quite a struggle over the last four or five years. Uh, We learned by an email that was given to us from Transport Canada that our cabotage was at risk through the European Canada Economic Trade Agreement. So what they were going to do was open portions of our cabotage to allow foreign ships and foreign seafarers to come in. And there was also another bill, the Emerson Report, that was going to be put forward that called for the total elimination of Canadian cabotage within seven years. We mounted a coalition of unions, over 600,000 union members, in order to try and fight this. And we launched 64 lawsuits against our federal government in order to fight it, in order to get them to actually do what they were supposed to do when it comes to temporary foreign workers in Canada. There was no maritime policy to cover temporary foreign workers. So we developed the policy. And the policy is fair, it's equitable to everybody, both the companies and the the unions. And it simply says that any ship coming into Canada for over 30 days, a foreign ship on a waiver, has to get a letter from the SIU and the Canadian Union saying that we have no one available to work on those ships. So if there is a Canadian available, they get first rights to work there regardless of the flag of the ship. If we have no one, then the temporary foreign worker on board gets a new contract of employment which is covered by Canadian Union conditions. Wow. Wages, working conditions, hours of work. Wow.
1: Everything. Incredible.
2: Yeah, it, it was a huge win, but it's always a continuous fight because there's always someone out there looking to destroy cabotage no matter what country it is.
1: So if a ship goes from a Canadian port to a Canadian port, then that ship has to be crewed by Canadian seafarers. And if Canadian seafarers aren't available, or, sorry, if a ship is in Canada for more than 30 days, if Canadian seafarers aren't available, then seafarers from other places can be employed to do that work. But it has to be according to Canadian Union conditions.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And what was happening was the foreign ships were coming in and working the guys 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And paying them was about $2.48 an hour. So now they can only work them eight hours a day. Anything over that is overtime. Weekends are overtime, and they have to pay them close to $27 an hour. Amazing. Yeah. So what we did was level the playing field. There, there is no incentive now not to use a Canadian seafarer.
1: And so currently in Australia, Warren, if a vessel comes in that's not flagged as Australian, does that vessel have to use Australian seafarers?
3: No. And the ship owners in this country have got so brazen, so arrogant, with the laws and the ineffective mechanisms there are to police those laws, that we have ships that have been operating on the coast for 10 years with foreign crews operating, for example, between ports like Newcastle and Gladstone, carrying ammonium nitrate, which is, you know, not mucking around stuff, using that to blow up mines and, you know, build open-cut mines. So seriously dangerous cargo, but for 10 years... Sailing on the coast and no one bats an eyelid and no one does anything to assist or even, you know, support an argument that we might put forward that that's a cabotage trade and it should be the domain of Australian seafarers. The place is out of control in that sense. Temporary licences are issued like confetti by the government of the day with no real consideration for the economic and social impacts on Australian workers.
1: So if you're sitting on the beach in Newcastle and you watch a vessel leave Newcastle port full of ammonium nitrate headed for Gladstone, who are the crew on that vessel?
3: Whoever they pick up through various different manning agents, crew who are quite brutally exploited. What what are we talking
1: about? What kind of pay are we looking at for these guys? Well, I think we work it out.
3: And when we say around $2 an hour, we're not too far off the mark. And Jim's already made the point that the Canadian equivalent of the dollar's the same was about $2.50. So I think we're talking about those brutal rates of exploitation and long hours on top of that mm. and a lack of rights because yeah. we know what happened. As soon as a crew was to replace the workers that BHP and Blue Scope manipulated the system to sack them and get rid of those last two iron boats, those crews went up the gangway and the first thing they did, they took their fridges out of their cabins. They took their TVs out of their cabins and they cut their out by 10 minutes. So you're not just talking about brutal wages. You're talking about standover conditions of work, thuggery, and we know from previous Senate inquiries, murders. Murders on the coast, gun running on the coast, all sorts of criminal behaviour and activity masked by flag of convenience shipping. And these things are real and they need to be addressed Mm. and that's why our campaign is running very strongly. It's getting a lot of media attention and people are starting slowly to wake up to the point that Jim made that it's just not acceptable to walk into the factory down the road here in Alexandria and say everyone's getting replaced by workers, we're going to pay $2 an hour, see mm. you all later. And there would be an uproar if that happened in the middle of Alexandria or in the middle of Sydney. But because we are an unseen industry, mm. ships sail off the coast, people don't know what's going on, people can't see us We never don't see that it. level of brutality and exploitation. Yep.
1: And so, Jim, how did you manage to get this up in Canada? I mean, it seems like the situation there is vastly, vastly different to what's going on in Australia.
2: Yeah, and that's a valid point. There wasn't a magic wand that was waved and everything was okay. This was a four and five year struggle and fight to get the legislation and to get the laws enforced that we needed. Mm. Because Warren is right, you know, and everybody's right, we're a ghost industry. We don't do a good job at promoting ourselves because we just kind of plug along and that's the way it goes. But cabotage has become a dirty word, and it shouldn't be. We're defending it all of the time. But if you look at United Nations countries that are on water... Over 80% of them have some form of cabotage law. So it's not, you know, it's the norm. It's not something we should have to defend. It's something that governments should look at and it becomes normalized. The general public really doesn't know about the shipping industry. We did a survey when we started our campaign where four out of ten Canadians thought shipping was important or even knew about it. The Ipsos Reid just did a survey. Seven out of ten Canadians now think it's important to our economy. They're aware Mm -hmm. of the industry and they support a Canadian shipping industry. And Australia can have the same thing every rocket science politicians think they're smart people and they always come to us and say, you know, you can't do anything without us. We'll figure out solutions. The solution to this is easy. Somebody's got to get off their ass and actually sign a piece of paper that says Australians come first when it comes to shipping. It's not hard. And if they talk about cheaper gas, cheaper, this cheaper, that it's a bunch of crap. Things Mm -hmm. don't get cheaper. If you use foreign labor, the profits of the companies simply go up Mm -hmm. and someday something's going to happen around the world where instead of getting 7 bucks a ton to move something in Australia, somebody's going to offer them 9 bucks a ton somewhere else, and Australia's not going to have ships to move their stuff. And if you look at fuel security that Warren's told me about since I've been here, that should be a huge concern to every Australian.
0: At Unity Bank, we are 100% committed to maritime workers. We pride ourselves on delivering better all round value to our members and their families. Unity Bank, proud supporter of the Maritime Union of Australia and sponsor of this podcast.
1: So you're the chair of the ITF Cabotage Task Force. And for those people who aren't familiar with the ITF, it's the International Transport Workers Federation, which is like an international union for maritime and other transport workers. In your opinion, from that position, why are governments globally collaborating with the shipping industry to do this, to seafarers unions?
2: It's an easy answer. That's where their money comes from. When you look at campaigns and everything else, they get their money for their finance through big industry, and that's who they listen to. I was just in America and I listened to a senator and he said, those that pay me get a meeting with me and those that don't just get good government. Well, that says a lot, right? On who's paying who. The working people of countries, and especially when it comes to cabotage and what the ITF is doing, we have an opportunity here, an opportunity to spread a message of people have a right to work in their own country. This is about domestic jobs. You know, we talk cabotage, we talk shipping. It's about domestic jobs and your right to work in your own country. And the MUA is on the right path because they're getting the message out. People are starting to listen. It's starting to turn around. You know, we're having meetings. We're doing everything. And as far as the ITF is concerned, our focus right now is Australia. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to go throw every resource and we're going to do something here. And we're going to make sure the government listens. The new government has made some great promises. Now it's going to be up to everybody to follow up with them when they get elected and make sure that they stick to those promises because we've all slid down the rabbit hole. But we'll make sure that doesn't happen this time.
1: Well, tell us a bit about that, Warren. What exactly has the shortened opposition promised in terms of shipping legislation?
3: Well, they've promised to put Australian ships back on the coast with an Australian flag on the back of them. Now, they've done that in a general sense, by a commitment to a cabotage regime. Now, the details of that have clearly got to be worked out, and the devil's always in the detail. But Mm. to make that initial announcement's very positive. Mm. They've also come out very strongly around the question of fuel security that Jim just mentioned, because we've identified that there might be only 20 days fuel in this country. And if you break that down to what it means when it does run out, I mean, hospitals stop, industry stops, cars stop, the whole economy stops, and really such a serious impact from a lack of policy needs addressing. And the opposition have been very clear about their support for questions around fuel security and the potential for Australian flagged tankers to be a part of that solution. And we support that. It is a solution because there's plenty of people out there identifying fuel security as a problem, but very few have got a solution. So we've put up a position that, that provides a solution that gives the Australian government some control to be able to maintain supplies of fuel in and out of the country because 99% of our fuel comes in through foreign flagships. There's no Australian seafarers carrying fuel into this country and as you've seen, they've closed the refining industries down. So everything's on the basis of import and we need to make sure that there's some national sovereign control over those trading routes. And the fuel security argument has been a very strong one in the community. It's supported very broadly and it has got the support of the opposition. So that's been a positive thing. So with the Coastal Trading Act and modifying elements of that strengthening cabotage with fuel security, with also the strategic fleet, which is part of the fuel security answer, but it's a much broader thing. It's also about Australian seafarers being able to operate in naval auxiliary vessels, for example, non-war vessels, but you know, there's plenty of jobs out there and there's a number of other countries that have opted to go down a, a naval auxiliary path. We're already up the gangway of the Sycamore helicopter training ship. Uh, it's Navy white flag and we're hopeful that there's plenty more jobs like that as well. But I think the main thing for us is that we've got to fix up the cabotage laws and have a primacy of Australian general license vessels so they can't be undermined by foreign flagships. And that's what's happening. Government has allowed that to happen and created the circumstances where it makes it easy to happen. We've got to stop that and close them loopholes. So
1: effectively, we're looking for a situation similar to what Jim has just described in Canada, where whoever works on the Australian coast does it under MUA paying conditions. Well, that's our view. Um, and
3: visas particularly, Shane, in that regard. And... The Canadian model with respect to visas is a world leading model around the protection of human rights at the end of the day. I mean, and why should every seafarer is a worker? And you know, if we haven't got the ships and the seafarers to trade on our coast, other workers who come in and fill that gap should have the same pay and conditions that we enjoy. That's a fair thing. It's a human rights question. It's a question of democracy and fairness. And so we strongly promote that and we hope that the visa system that we put in place and certainly one that we're advocating goes down the path of the Canadian model, which we think is much superior than any other cabotage model we've seen.
1: So the last 40 years is littered with betrayals by Australian Labor Party bureaucrats. What makes you think that the situation is going to change at all under a shortened government?
3: Well, we've got to deal with what we've got to deal with. And yes, there's been some historical evidence to show that not every Labor government delivers on every promise that it's made. But this, I think there's more momentum on this campaign and there's been more positive announcements in the most broadest public arenas, daily on newses, in political meetings, in press conferences. The ALP have consistently come out and said they're going to deliver these changes to shipping. Now, whether they do or not, that's, we will keep campaigning. And it's the same thing as Change the Rules and the whole Change the Rules campaign. And it's been made very clear from the ACTU that if outcomes aren't delivered with respect to Change the Rules, the union movement will pursue that government, that Labor government. And if we're in a situation, and we hope we don't get to that situation, but if we are put into a space whereby cabotage isn't delivered, we'll continue to fight. We're not going to stop fighting regardless of the government until such time as we have an outcome that's suitable for Australian workers and Australian seafarers. So we will continue to hold a Labor government to account. And that's an important political point and one that has been sadly lacking when you go back and look at the Your Rights at Work campaign where a Labor government was elected and unfortunately we packed our bags and we all went home. And we had an obligation at that time to continue that struggle up and hold that government to account to deliver outcomes out of the Your Rights at Work campaign. It didn't happen. The well, whole movement has learned a lot of lessons from that. Well, the movement systematically demobilized, actually. Systematically demobilized. Yeah. It wasn't demobilized. just a mistake. It was a it was, political w- decision that was It was made. a political decision that was a mistake. And we, I think there's been a lot of soul-searching and a lot of people have realised they pulled the wrong rein at that time and there's a recognition now and a greater degree of consciousness that you need to hold the Labor government to account.
1: So, Jim, I understand that the majority of the world seafarers are Filipino and Indonesian. They're two great seafaring nations in the world of seafarers these days and also that the Filipino Seafarers Union and the Indonesian Seafarers Union are members of the ITF do those unions support the cabotage regimes that the Canadian Seafarers Union and the MUA are trying to get up?
2: Yeah, it's surprising actually. We had that uh, meeting with the labor supply because if we look at within the ITF, you've got traditional maritime nations that have their own flags and have their own fleets. And you've got what they call the labor supply nations. I had a meeting with most of the labor supply and it was a very open conversation. But everyone has to realize, and they do, without strong national unions. Those labor supply unions are going to take a kicking and so are their seafarers because the enforcement of ITF agreements and the conditions the ITF fights for are enforced by strong maritime nations like Australia, like Canada, United States, around the world. So without strong, without strong unions, labor supply is in real trouble and they get that. It's always a hard sell to your membership because my member said the same thing. You have ITF agreements, you know, you're fighting for these foreign seafarers, yet they're taking our jobs. That has to be explained to our own memberships, how that works as well, because we're trade unionists. We have certain obligations to world seafarers. All we want is a fair shot. And if it hurts somebody's feelings, that if you come to Canada, the ship has to be crewed Canadian,
1: well, so be it. Basically, that the strong seafarers unions in Canada, the US, Europe, and Australia, through the work and struggle of those unions has actually brought up the floor of paying conditions for seafarers from the Philippines, Indonesia, and other countries, and that actually if we can strengthen cabotage in these countries, then that strengthens the paying conditions of seafarers everywhere. Absolutely. It gives you more
2: power. I would go as far as to say that dockers probably did more to raise conditions than the seafarers unions because the dockers were the guys that boycotted ships, that hung ships up, that made them comply with those conditions. This is what you get into when you get into an international organization like the ITF. Because if you look at certain countries, even in Europe and in Indonesia and in the Philippines who also have cabotage, their cabotage rates may be lower than the ITF rates because they're based on ILO conditions or based on national conditions. So that's the complexity of dealing with cabotage. But again, I don't make any apologies for what I do because the stronger in maritime nations, we have a standard and so be it. That's the standard we enforce and our seafarers do have a right to work in their own country.
1: So, Warren, you're going hard at the moment on this campaign. There's going to be a lot of seafarers and wharfies and others out there listening to this. What do you say to them about what's coming over the next couple of months?
3: Mobilise. Mobilise. Everyone on the streets, everyone into action, everyone contacting their branches to identify how they can participate in the campaign, the shipping campaign and the election campaign. And we've got a space for everybody. We're not trying to tell everyone to go out and uh, hand out ALP leaflets, because I know some won't do that. But we have the Change the Rules campaign, which ultimately all roads lead to getting rid of the Morrison government. And so we're asking everybody to really get active. It's the key thing for us now. If we're going to crank the campaign up, we need to have the demonstrations. We had a demonstration yesterday outside Peter Dutton, Potato Head's office, and he put up a terrorist fence for us. We weren't quite sure whether he was locking the terrorists inside or what he was trying to do, but it's pretty symptomatic of this government, you know, to rely on bars and fences and jails to prosecute policy. So we're just going to keep fighting on the streets. Myself and Jim tomorrow will be in Melbourne. We'll be on the streets in Melbourne outside of BHP. We'll be having a seafarers meeting again telling seafarers in Melbourne, the absolute critical nature of mobilising and getting out on the streets and fighting this campaign and making sure we win the election. Thursday, we're down in Port Kembla, demonstration against Blue Scope and BHP for their disgraceful act of removing us out of their supply chain for their steelworks. That's a national interest trade in our view. You mine iron ore in Port Hedland. You bring it around to Port Kembla to make steel with Australian workers in both places, yet we can chop Australian seafarers out of the supply chain. Completely unacceptable. And we're going to be down there telling BHP and Blue Scope what we think of them and their behaviour as well. So the message is activism. The message is coordinated, systematic campaigning and getting involved in the union's campaign, finding ways you can even, if it's the leafleting, letterboxing, being part of the election, taking leaflets and information to your pub and club talking about the issues with your mates around the place and at the footy club or whatever. But the key for us now is to crank it up and for activism. We have our policy positions in place. We know what we're fighting for. We want cabotage. We want fuel security. We want a strategic fleet. We want the right to sail in our own domestic trade. And all we've got to do now is crank the fight up to make sure that we achieve it.
0: Maritime Super is the largest industry fund for the maritime industry. With a proud history as one of Australia's longest-running super funds, Maritime Super delivers innovative super and retirement benefits, helping its members make the right decisions to secure their financial freedom into the future. To learn more, email www.maritimesuper.com.au.
1: Jim, you've travelled a very long way to be with us here today. I really appreciate you coming in, mate. No, listen, it's my pleasure. And and I thank the MUA for having me down here. And I
2: just want to reiterate what Warren said, because we went through the same thing in Canada. It's important for their membership to get out and do what they have to do, door to door, get people out to vote. And I heard yesterday some of them saying, you know, I don't like to vote for that party. Listen, I told my members too. you got to vote for who's going to support you. If they're going to support you, then vote for them, get them in office, and then somebody will chase the hell out of them to make sure they do what they need to do. So... Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
3: And I'd just like to also thank Jim publicly. And Jim and Diane have been out, had a pretty hectic schedule. They've been in Western Australia at the conference and, uh, you know, all up and down the coast now demonstrating, fighting for cabotage, making the point. And it's a wonderful act of solidarity that we greatly appreciate and we'll never forget. So thank you very much. Comrades,
1: friends, you've been listening to Radio Stingray, the podcast of the Sydney branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. You heard it straight from the mouth of the officials and from some of our international comrades. We're going to have to get out on the street and fight for it if we want to sort this situation out. If you enjoyed the episode, I encourage you to share it on socials. Go over and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, if you can see water, join the MUA.
0: tuned in to Radio Stingray. Radio Stingray podcast was brought to you by McNally Jones staff lawyers, assisting MUA members and their families for 40 years. Phone 9233 4744 or visit mcnally.com.au and get McNally's on your side.